I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live. Of the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From APM, American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. The students that we have have been told time and time again, well, people like you don't go to college. I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to prove you wrong. More Americans from more diverse backgrounds are going to college. I just remember almost being afraid to touch things. I was like, it just felt out of my league. As the face of the country changes, colleges have to change too. If we didn't find a way to be welcoming, we wouldn't have anybody to be a student. I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, the new face of college from American Radio Works. First, this news. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, The New Face of College. I'm Stephen Smith. The character of American college campuses is changing. The teenager who graduates from high school goes right on to college and graduates in four years with parents footing the bill. That's yesterday's student. Today's student is likely to be someone very different. I'm ready. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Can you stand up? So this is a humorous. In a humorous? Humorous? This is Amber Ortiz-Diaz. She's a third-year college student at Heritage University in central Washington State. Okay, what is this called? She's at home studying for an anatomy class. She grabs her three-year-old son, Jaden, and massages his arms and legs. And then tibia. She names the scientific terms for each body part. Let me massage your scapula. Can you say scapula? Okay, thank you. Amber is a single mom. She had Jaden when she was 18. Today, they share a small, tidy, three-bedroom trailer with her dad and sister. Amber grew up picking (laughs) apples and cherries with her parents, who came here from Mexico to work in the orchards. We'd wake up really early, get the ladder, go up there and pick the good apples and go tree by tree and how many bins you fill, how much you get paid. And it's exhausting. It came to the point where you're like, you're working for a week and you're just so exhausted that when you would rest, you'd close your eyes and you would see apples. Until recently, someone like Amber would have been unlikely to enroll in college. But the number of Hispanic students going to U.S. colleges is skyrocketing. Colleges are also seeing more students who have children and more students who are low income, people who need to work while they go to school. But those are not the people colleges tend to be set up to serve. We have a long tradition of higher education serving a particular sector of the American public and not serving the majority, frankly. Gloria Namerowitz is executive director of Yes, We Must, a coalition of colleges that serve low-income students. We've too easily let low-income people be left out, and that has not been healthy. Namerowitz says getting more people through college leads to a host of good things, healthier families, healthier communities, higher voting levels. And it's crucial if the U.S. is going to stay competitive in the global economy. She says the country will need a lot more college graduates to fill the jobs of the future. If we're going to make progress in this area, it's going to be with those who are not already in the pipeline to college, who have been underrepresented in college-going students for a long time. Already the number of people in those groups who are going to college is rising. But so-called non-traditional students are less likely to finish college than their traditional classmates. The biggest challenge is money. Half of all college students get a degree within six years, but only a quarter of low-income students do. Another big challenge is that many colleges just aren't geared for non-traditional students. In this hour, we visit three colleges that are trying to serve the new student by changing everything from when the dining hall is open to what they mean when they talk about success. Our story begins at the school that Amber attends. Producer Samara Freemark visited Heritage University in eastern Washington state. Guys, uh, put your lab coats on and then we can gather around here. We'll be assisting each other. Heritage Anatomy professor Melvin Samoy pulls a preserved cat out of a cooler. It's been skinned and partially dissected. This is it right here. Do you see this? Okay. Uh, you know, deep femoral artery and vein. Amber Ortiz-Diaz and four of her classmates, all of them Mexican-American women, gather around as Dr. Samoy points at the cat's circulatory system with a scalpel. What's this one? The superior vena cava. The superior vena cava. Okay, very good. What about this? Brachiocephalic trunk. 
Artery? Yeah. Artery. Two of the women here want to become nurses. The other three want to go on to medical school. Amber wants to be an OBGYN. Being the one caring for a pregnant woman with their child all the way to birth, being the one saying, hey, you're having a boy or hey, you're having a girl. I mean, imagine being in the doctor side of it. I would not mind doing this for the rest of my life. I would not. I would wake up excited. I would wake up just so motivated to do this. Amber's parents didn't have much education. Her father finished fifth grade, and her mom dropped out of high school. It's hard to ask for help from your parents growing up their school. Can you help me with my math homework? No, because I didn't learn that or I don't know. Can you help me with my English homework? Well, I don't speak English. How can I help you with that, you know? But they always wanted Amber to get a degree. My parents always told us, if you don't get to your homework, if you don't get good grades, this is what your life is going to be. And they told us every day. They would always say, like, que te vas a andar matando en los files, that you'd be killing yourselves at the fields, you know, working very hard for a little bit of money. Amber got good grades in high school. She says that her teachers loved her. They had big plans for her. She was going to be one of those kids who got out, who made something of her life. And then her junior year, Amber got pregnant. People weren't very nice. The expectation is, oh, she got pregnant. She's not going to do anything with her life. A lot of my teachers, one in particular, she told me, you're not going to go to college. This is a mistake. And I was very upset with her. I told her, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to college and I'm going to prove you wrong. Amber finished high school and she won a scholarship that paid for four years at a private college. But she didn't want to move away from home with a new baby. Luckily for her, there's a four-year college nearby. Heritage University was founded in 1982 by a Catholic nun and two Native women from the nearby Yakima Reservation. Their goal was to bring a quality education to an isolated population. Three decades later, the college has expanded to almost 900 undergrads. And as more immigrants arrive to work in the Yakima Valley, the demographics of the school have changed as well. Today, most students are the children of migrant farm workers from Mexico. Many students arrive not quite sure what college is all about always. Heritage President John Bassett came to the Valley in 2010 after a career spent at a string of more prestigious universities. The troubles of isolated first-generation students were new to him. You know, you live here in the Valley, your family picks fruit, you don't have a lot of money. There are problems they face that make it very hard for them to go to college. They have to really want to to get through. Heritage offers programs for migrant workers, programs for Native Americans, programs for first-generation students, college retention classes, tutoring, mentoring, and a barrage of remedial classes for students who aren't quite ready for college when they come in. Some staff members even visit students at home. I've come with Olivia Gutierrez, Heritage's Director of Admissions, to check up on a student named Joanna Gonzalez. Joanna spent a semester at Heritage, but dropped out last spring to take care of her nieces and nephews. She re-enrolled this semester. Gutierrez is here to make sure school is going okay and that Joanna stays in this time. Hola, mija. ¿Cómo estás? Joanna is 20. She lives with her father, Victor, her mother, Veronica, and five other relatives. They live just down the road from Heritage, in a little house surrounded by the fields where Victor picks hops. One day, the farmer who owns the land brought Olivia Gutierrez in to talk to his workers about higher education. And that's how she met Joanna, who had been thinking about going to community college. And she took me and gave me a tour of the campus, and I really liked it. And I said, okay, this is much better for me. It's not as big, and I won't get lost. This is perfect. But Joanna's parents were nervous about the whole idea of college. Este, para costear los gastos para la universidad era demasiado difícil para nosotros. For us, it was something very difficult, Veronica Gonzalez says. We knew college was expensive. It was hard to look for scholarships and money to pay for college. We didn't understand the help that was out there. Navigating the college process with its financial aid documents and applications is really complicated, Olivia says, especially for immigrant families. Oh, my God, and try opening one of those documents. It is scary. It is scary. They ask a lot of questions that are very worrisome for a lot of our students. You know, are your parents married? What is this family situation? It's hard for them to understand when, you know, it's hard for them to spell their name. Gutierrez understands. She came from a family that was a lot like Joanna's. 
Growing up in a migrant family, we had no idea there was college or that there was anything beyond high school. And education was not something that was ever talked about. What was important for us was to learn to work hard, clean the house, do the house chores. Gutierrez dropped out of school and was working as a waitress when a customer told her about the GED. Eventually, she went back to school, earned a bachelor's in business from Heritage. Ten years later, she's the school's admissions director. For me to be able to say, I know what it is to get up at three in the morning to pick those cherries. I know what it is to to cut asparagus. I know exactly what it is to do that work. And uh, I know exactly what a college education can do for their children to tell them that it can be done. Because we are a fast-growing minority, and we we are the less educated, and we have to start doing something about it. Because what are we going to look like a few decades from now if we are not pushing our children to to get an education? Heritage is trying to push with its support programs and flexible class schedules. But Heritage's graduation rates are stubbornly low. Fewer than a fifth of the students finish in six years. Boosting graduation rates is one of President Bassett's top priorities. Ironically, he says that means that the school has to become more selective. The school used to accept pretty much any applicant, but now it encourages some students to try a year or two at a community college before coming to Heritage. If you and I can't look at each other eyeball to eyeball and say this student has a good chance to succeed, it may be unethical for us to accept that student because he's going to accrue debt. He's going to flunk out and feel bad about himself, feel bad about education. Our door is still open to the student that's willing to work hard and is ready to learn here, Um, you know, and we will provide the help to get them through. So I don't believe we really are denying access to anybody who has a chance to succeed here. Succeeding means different things for different students. For some people, success might mean getting out of a place like the Valley. But some people can't leave. And some don't want to. Amber Ortiz-Diaz wants to stay. In this valley right now, there's a lot of things that need to be changed. And I've always, always wanted to stay local. I mean, to feel like I'm making a difference, coming back to your community and serving for them. And to succeed and people to be like, oh, you know, that's Amber. Amber's doing something, you know. That's just what I want to do. This summer, Amber started an internship at Pacific Northwest University, a medical school that opened recently near Heritage. She's got a mentor at the school who's helping her get ready to apply for admission. When she's finally done with her education, she says, she wants to buy a little house for her and Jaden up in the hills above the valley and open her own OBGYN practice, serving the kind of teenage mother that she used to be. That's producer Samara Freemark. You're listening to The New Face of College from American Radio Works. I'm Stephen Smith. For a lot of students at Heritage University, the biggest barrier to finishing college is money. Tuition at Heritage is about $18,500 a year. That's fairly cheap for a private four-year school, but it's still a real stretch for the kinds of students the school attracts, even with grants and loans. But what if the money problem just went away? What if a student from a poor family could go to the top private four-year school in the country and not have to worry at all about cost? Amherst College in Massachusetts is routinely ranked the number one or number two liberal arts school in the country, and Amherst is on a mission to diversify its student body. The college admits students regardless of need, and it covers their costs. Amherst is finding, though, that paying the tuition isn't enough. The college is having to change to make sure that its new students feel welcome and that they make it through. Suzanne Pico has the story. So right now we're approaching the first year quad. Uh, the first year quad a chipper tour guide herds a group of high school seniors across the campus of Amherst College. It's a warm spring day and the campus looks like the kind of place you imagine when you think of New England colleges. Old brick buildings, a sprawling grassy quad framed by just budding trees, and big green Adirondack chairs where students are reading books in the sunshine. The admissions staff couldn't have created a better day to sell Amherst to the visiting high school students. My name is Lily Mummins, and I am from Portage in Wisconsin. Lily Mummins is a tall, lanky teenager with long, straight blonde hair. 
Lily is a star student, and she thinks she'll go to Amherst, but there's just one thing. Um, well, we're poor. <laughs> um, we've had to make a lot of sacrifices, and we've been on food stamps before and things like that. So, like, for a long time, I didn't even think I could go to college because I'd have to be home working to help pay for things. But Lily actually can afford to go to Amherst. Even though the sticker price is $60,000, most students won't pay that much. The school has offered Lily a financial aid package that'll make her total out-of-pocket cost per year about $7,000. That's a number she and her family can handle, and she won't have to take out any loans. The admissions office has paid for Lily and about 160 of her peers to fly here this weekend from across the country to make sure they know they're wanted at Amherst. It's part of a larger effort to woo high-achieving, low-income students. This represents a sea change in the history of Amherst. If you look at yearbooks from the 1960s, you'll see all men, most of them white. This is a place that used to be reserved for the sons of the wealthy elite. When I arrived 40 years ago, the thing that struck me was the privilege of the place. Austin Serrett is a professor of jurisprudence and political science. And I remember walking through the parking lot, the student parking lot, and seeing the cars that the students brought to campus, which were much nicer than anything I was driving or could imagine driving. Serrett came to teach at Amherst in the early 1970s. The college was still all male. Women weren't admitted until 1975. Amherst and other colleges were starting to use affirmative action to admit more students of color. But for decades, it was only a slow trickle of new faces on campus. And then in the early 2000s, something changed. When Tony Marks came on board, and I've never forgotten this, um, he came into a faculty meeting early on and he said, we need to think about who our students should be. Elizabeth Aries is a professor of psychology. She's remembering her first encounter with former president Anthony Marks. And that really struck me. I'd been here at that point for 30 years, and no one had actually raised the question, who should our students be? When Marks started at Amherst in 2004, he had a history of working for social equality. During apartheid, he helped set up a school for black students in South Africa. In Marx's view, Amherst College had been participating in a system where the rich were getting richer, the poor were staying where they were. We thought we could be a better college if we had a larger mix of students. That's Tony Marx, who's now president of the New York Public Library. Marx says Amherst had drifted away from its founding mission. Originally, it began with a, a careful look at the history of Amherst, which, if you look at it, Unlike many of its peer institutions, the charter founding it uh, with a sort of missionary zeal talked about training the indigent. During Marx's time at Amherst, he spoke around the country about the need for colleges to provide high-quality education to all students, regardless of their ability to pay. He also helped launch a campaign that ultimately raised more than half a billion dollars for the school. That meant a lot more money for scholarships. My name is Brooke Brownell. I'm from Ware, Massachusetts. Brooke Brownell is sitting on her unmade bed in Morris Pratt dormitory. She's got Christmas lights strung up on the walls and books and papers scattered around, like a typical college student. But she's not a typical college student. Brooke is 29 years old. The storm is very loud. I didn't realize that it was going to be this loud with, you know, drunk students. <laughs> it's college. Even though she's older than most of her peers, Brooke wanted to live in the dorms because she's a transfer student and she didn't want to feel isolated as a commuter. A couple years ago, when Brooks Community College professor told her she should apply to Amherst, she thought he was nuts. She grew up in a working-class family in western Massachusetts, and her impression of the school was always... Rich, really smart kids. But she applied, and to her surprise, not only did she get accepted, but the school offered her a full ride. When Brooks stepped on campus, she says it felt surreal. I just remember almost being afraid to touch things. I was like, oh, I don't, how could I even, like, stay here? Like, I just, it, it just felt out of my league, I guess. But now she's thriving at Amherst. Her grades are good, and one corner of her dorm room has a wall full of ribbons she's won riding horses for the Amherst equestrian team. That's something she never would have been able to afford on her own. Students like Brooke can do all this because Amherst has adopted a need-blind policy, meaning the college considers your application for admission without regard to how much money you have. 
And also, it's committed to meeting full need, so that if you get accepted, you won't have to take out loans as part of your financial aid package. This approach is very rare. Most scholarship money in America actually goes to students who could afford to go to college without it. It's called merit aid. Merit aid is actually, it's a very loose term. The way most people think about it is money to top students. Stephen Bird is a senior policy analyst with the New America Foundation. He studies student financial aid, and he says for years there's been a kind of merit aid arms race going on. Colleges are competing for wealthy students and luring them in with merit scholarships. Families like to think that it's rewarding their children for doing well. But there's a lot of merit aid that just isn't going just to the best and brightest students, but is actually just going to students who are wealthy enough to come in. Bird says what Amherst and a handful of other prestigious institutions like MIT and Vassar are doing is uncommon actively recruiting low-income students and making a large pool of financial aid available to them. He says there's no financial incentive for colleges to do this, so the only colleges that are really opening up their doors are ones that can afford it and feel a moral obligation to be more accessible. What we've seen is the leaders at Amherst, particularly the former president, Anthony Marks, really made it a personal mission to make one of the most exclusive private colleges in the country one of the most socioeconomically diverse. But in the early 2000s, when Amherst put its foot on the gas to bring in more low-income students, some people worried the school would lose some of its academic rigor. Others worried about whether the new students would feel welcome there. Here's Professor Austin Serrett again. So it's one thing to say, come, come to our institution, without thinking, what do we have to do to prepare the ground so that the students who come to a place like this from a variety of backgrounds, all of them have a fair shot. Serrett says when the new students began arriving, he was forced to rethink how he teaches. He had to figure out how to teach someone who hadn't necessarily gone to the best high school, but who could excel with a little extra guidance. I think for teachers like me, the diversification of the student body has been a great benefit. And what I think is that I'm a, a, a livelier, better, more engaged teacher than I might have otherwise been had the student body not changed. Other professors say their classrooms have changed for the better, too. Elizabeth Aries used to assign J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. And she says her students would sympathize with Holden Caulfield, the wealthy kid who keeps getting kicked out of prep school. When Aries taught this book in a new, more diverse classroom, she started to hear things like, I have no sympathy for this character. He gets chance after chance after chance. I'm here, and I've got one chance in an education. I fail out of here, I don't get a second chance. I find him to be whiny and complaining and not sympathetic at all. Well, that sets other people who found him to be such a sympathetic young man, sets them back on their heels to see it through that lens. To get this kind of diversity in its classrooms, Amherst has had to work hard on recruitment. It's not that talented poor students aren't out there, but many high-achieving, low-income students don't believe they can get into selective private colleges or afford tuition, so they don't apply. Amherst works with organizations that help match low-income kids with selective schools that can offer them scholarships. The college also sends recruiters to places they never used to go before. And it sponsors special weekends like this one, where it hosts low-income students from across the country. Today, a fifth of the Amherst student body is poor enough to qualify for federal Pell Grants, which are only available to needy students. At most elite schools, that number is much lower. Um, Can I have everybody's attention real quick? So thank you all for falling for the bait. Rashard Bryant towers over a group of visiting high schoolers who have gathered this evening at Amherst's Community Engagement Center. Rashard is six foot eight and slim. He's a senior from the Bronx. On a campus of only 1,800 students, Rashard doesn't blend in. When he arrived at Amherst, he felt a little uncomfortable, but he thought at least he could find black students at Amherst that would be like him. Because I grew up in the Bronx where I was one of the stronger students in my school, um, I thought everyone here would be like me. Okay, we're all the strong students from our urban high schools, these public schools. Everyone's going to struggle too. Um, And I ended up realizing that one, not everyone was from the Bronx or an urban setting. Not everyone was from a lower 
income or working class background. Um, I met a lot of black students who were wealthy, um, and that was a first for me. Richard was worried he wasn't going to be as prepared for college as some of his more well-off peers. He got help from a summer program designed to ease the transition to Amherst, but he felt like he was constantly one step behind everyone else, and he always had to ask for extensions on papers. I think one of the hardest things as a person of color here is going to a white professor, or going to any professor, but especially going to a white professor who may not know where you're coming from and having to say, I need an extension over and over and over again. It became the story of my life. And, you know, I finished with all A's um, at the end of my freshman year. But I finished with this sense of you're not doing it the way everyone else is doing it. You always need an exception. You're not, you know, at the level that everyone else is. There are many more challenges that the lower income and black students faced on this campus than the affluent white students. Here's psychology professor Elizabeth Aries again. She wrote a book on race and class at Amherst. Because they're coming into an environment that is utterly unfamiliar to them. I mean, as far as some of them were concerned, they'd been dropped on Mars. Whereas this is a continuation of a world that the affluent students have already known. I've always been amongst students who were just like me, had similar backgrounds. That's Nadia Morsi. She's a graduating senior from New Jersey. Like their parents were most likely immigrants, and they were first in their family to go to college, um, which is not the sort of experience I got here. Nadia is a first-generation student who says she really struggled to fit in at Amherst. It has been unbelievably difficult, I think. It's just, I feel like where I'm from in New Jersey, my experiences thus far have been like, Diversity was never an initiative. That was the surrounding I lived in. And I think I didn't even have to confront my, my identity. I didn't even have an identity before I came to Amherst. Like, then I automatically became, well, Mexican or Puerto Rican by default because that's what the assumption was. Nadia's mom is Peruvian and her dad is Egyptian. She told me she wished Amherst offered some sort of brochure for people like her to learn how to fit in, people of color, people who don't have much money, people whose parents never went to college. The influx of new students has challenged things about college life that Amherst had always taken for granted, like the 10-day Thanksgiving break, for example. Elizabeth Aries says the college used to shut down during break. Basically, the students who are still on campus are the ones who can't afford to go home for that 10-day period. Well, these students are left without dining facilities who are basically going to have to pay the money, which they don't have, to go eat out in town for 10 days. Today, the dining hall stays open during Thanksgiving break. And what we've come to see as we've changed our student body is that there are many things on this campus that we hadn't thought through completely that were based on assumptions of wealth. But now we had many students here who didn't have that kind of wealth. Let's say you're coming to campus for the first time and you don't have a winter coat or you don't have bedding for your dorm room. If your family contribution to tuition is less than $5,000, Amherst's financial aid office will now give you what they call a startup grant of $400 to get things that more well-off students have money to buy. Two domestic round-trip plane tickets are also built into the financial aid packages of needy students. The college will pay for you to buy clothes for job interviews and for other things wealthy students may take for granted. It's the night before graduation, and about 200 people gather underneath a big, white, open-sided tent. There are rows of tables with crisp linens, an open bar, and a dance floor next to a buffet with platters of grilled steak and caprese salads. Uniformed staff serve hors d'oeuvres to well-dressed students and families. Every year at this time, Amherst parents rent out these tents to hold private, catered parties on campus for their graduates. These tent parties are expensive. Some students felt this was a tangible example of a class division. The haves could afford to celebrate their graduates in style, while the have-nots couldn't. So this year... Hi, everyone. Thank you all for coming. This is the first ever first-generation graduation tent. So let's give a round of applause for all the graduates. That's Nedia Morsi, the graduating senior from New Jersey. She petitioned the administration to sponsor this tent for the families of first-generation students. Amherst has never paid for a graduation tent party before, but it plans to do it again next year. The next morning is graduation, and Amherst's main quad looks like the United Nations. 
Parents in colorful caftans and headscarves pull up chairs next to parents wearing seersucker suits and pearls. Where are we going to sit? You got seats over there? How many? You got enough barn and... Rashard Bryant's family is here. His parents, some extended family, and his older sister and brother drove up from the Bronx in D.C. As the band switches to pomp and circumstance, Rashard's dad, Roger, gets teary. His tall, handsome son looks regal walking with the rest of the graduates. Roger comes up to me and points out something in the program. What, what are you looking at? Cum laude. I thought that he did not get it, and he's in the program. When my daughter showed me that, you know, I was, I was to tears again, so I'm just so proud. Roger says he's going to frame this program, along with other mementos of Richard from his childhood. Richard is the youngest of nine children, and when the youngest of any family graduates college, it's a big deal. But for the Bryants, Richard represents something bigger. No one in the family has ever gone to a place like Amherst before. See Next. There you go. Rashard Jamil Bryant. Yes! Yeah! 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 Our story on Amherst was produced by Suzanne Pico. You're listening to The New Face of College. I'm Stephen Smith. Richard Bryant is leaving Amherst not just with a prestigious degree, but with a new network of social and professional contacts. Amherst surveys its students to see how they do after graduation. The college has found that low-income students who got tuition help report the same standard of living after college as their peers who didn't get aid. For schools like Amherst, Vassar, and Harvard, Bringing in more diverse students is a matter of choice. These elite schools will always have plenty of applicants. For other colleges, it's a matter of survival. Huge demographic and economic changes in America mean that the pool of available students is changing, and colleges will have to change too. Coming up... If we didn't find a way to be welcoming to people who might not have felt so welcome, we wouldn't have anybody to be a student. We visit a public university that's becoming a top-tier school made up of students from the Texas border country. To read more about the changing demographics in American colleges, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can download this and other American Radio Works programs, and you can tell us what you think of our coverage. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. Support for this program comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Our program continues in just a moment from APM, American Public Media. You're listening to The New Face of College from American Radio Works. I'm Stephen Smith. We're at this relatively high point, and you can see the flat desert out there. Geology professor Philip Goodell is holding court in the place he loves best, the foothills of the Franklin Mountains near El Paso, Texas. He is a weather-beaten 72-year-old. His worn white cap is scrunched down over white hair. Professor Goodell has loved rocks since he was eight years old. There was a railroad uh, by here, and I used to go over there and climb up into the railroad cars. You could get good pyrite and all sorts of azurite. You know, when I went off to college in the East, I knew I wanted to be a geologist. He went away to college at Yale and got his doctorate at Harvard. He worked for a time in New York City, but came back to teach at the University of Texas at El Paso, UTEP in 1975. The geology is so much better here than Central Park. So, you know, there just wasn't the types of projects for me to work on that are close to, that, that there are here. This one, anything that you pick up on, you're going you're gonna to find fossils, little seashells. On the trail with Professor Goodell is Valeria Guerrero, one of his protégés. Yeah, this is, this was, this is just uh, indicating that this area was was alive, was full of animals, full of seashells. Valeria is 27. She says she was a wild teenager who barely finished high school. She had to take remedial classes at community college. That is where she discovered that she loves geology. So she transferred to UTEP to study with professors like Philip Goodell. He sees me as a respectable scientist. He's expecting me to be a, a a big shot of a geologist out there. 
Valeria married young, and she has a son. Her parents had some college, but that was in Mexico. So navigating the university has been a challenge. You need a guide. You need a guide to show you where to go and how to study and and who to talk to. And and that's Dr. Goodell. He's the one been guiding me to the, to the right places, to the right people. Valeria's specialty is gemstones here in the Franklin Mountains. She hopes to travel the world prospecting for emeralds and sapphires. A rare thunderstorm chases her and Professor Goodell off the mountain. They sing in the car as they head back to the geology lab. Valeria is hoping to teach in that lab someday after she gets a PhD. The University of Texas at El Paso, UTEP, has something to prove. Most of its students come from the dusty southwestern border of Texas. They are mostly poor, mostly Hispanic. But UTEP wants to prove that those students are an asset, not a liability. Those students are helping transform UTEP into a top-tier research university. And they're going on to advanced careers in sciences. UTEP says, here's how you do all that. You educate the students you have, not the students you wish you had. Producer Laurie Stern picks up our story. It's a hot, sunny Thursday, and a group of pre-med students has set up a table in the shade of a little tree in front of the engineering building. They're selling cookies and cupcakes to raise money for a trip to a clinic in the Dominican Republic. It's the sort of thing you might see on any campus. But if you look south from this campus, you see Juarez, Mexico, there's a clear view of the concrete houses and dirt roads that run up the hillside across the Rio Grande. This is a region that has huge untapped potential, a population that historically didn't have higher education opportunities. That's Diana Natalicio, president of UTEP since 1988. The demographics of the entire United States, certainly the state of Texas, are changing dramatically, and we were at the forefront of that because we happened to be located where we are. Eighty percent of the undergraduates here are Hispanic, the majority low-income, 36 percent from families that earn less than $20,000 a year. The old UTEP used to serve a very different population. Texas Western College presents a documentary film on its first 52 years of growth and development. This film about the school's history was produced in 1966, back when the school was called Texas Western College. It was founded 100 years ago as a school of mining and metallurgy to help the local mining companies and prospectors. Texas Western College is determined to successfully meet the challenge of graduating the kind of people who will help keep our country great. Over the years, the college added programs in nursing, computer engineering, and humanities. In 1971, five years after the film was made, Diana Natalicio became a professor of Portuguese at what had come to be called the University of Texas at El Paso. The university was much more an island. I wouldn't call it an ivory tower, but maybe an adobe tower. Somewhat disconnected from the surrounding community. Most of the students came from far west Texas and the majority from El Paso, but they didn't really reflect the changing demographic of this region, which was becoming increasingly Latino. The school's slogan had been Harvard on the border. But when Natalicio became president in 1988, she wanted to drop the pretension. She said the college should be more accessible to low-income first-generation students. After all, she'd been one herself. She knew there was talent in the growing Hispanic community. She argued it was in UTEP's interest to harness that talent. Steve Ryder is vice president for Information Resources and Planning. We needed to focus our program on serving that market. And that market was, you know, I hate to talk about it, in business marketing terms, but that market was only going to grow. And if we didn't find a way to be welcoming, we wouldn't have anybody to be a student. Since the times. A dozen or so students are crowded into a tiny office next to the psychobiology lab. 
Tanya Moreno is practicing a presentation on neurotransmitters. Tanya spoke only Spanish until she was 14, so she needs help with pronunciation. In addition to the language challenge, Tanya faced a financial one. Her first two years at UTEP, Tanya worked full-time in an office downtown. At first, it was a little hard because I, I, I had to work and go to college to pay for college. Last year, she was able to leave that job when she was offered one in the research lab. Putting undergraduates in laboratories is a key part of the UTEP plan. Here's Associate Provost Donna Eckel. The research that our undergraduate students get to do is beneficial in many ways. One, it's a job. They get, they get paid for that, and so it increases the number of jobs available. But two, it gives them an opportunity to do something that they haven't been exposed to before and really make that connection. Right now I'm applying for a, what is called a post-bac program. It's a one-year program that prepares you for a PhD. Tanya says her mom was a housewife, her dad was a truck driver. Neither graduated from high school. They wanted Tanya to go to college. They didn't know what she should study, just that a degree would improve her chances in life. They're thrilled she's become a scholar. Tanya wants to get her PhD at the University of Michigan. If she's accepted, she'll be following the path of her mentor, the professor who runs this lab, Eddie Castaneda. Michigan is where he got his doctorate. Eddie Castaneda grew up in El Paso and went to UTEP in the early 70s. This, this was my campus. Um, I used to come here with a cousin of mine when I was probably around eight or nine years old and just play in the Arroyos while my cousin was at, at class. This used to be the biology and chemistry building. And I remember coming in here and they had a display of bats uh, pinned onto a board. There were things going on here that, that were exciting. Can you imagine a collection of bats? Those scary things to a kid and, and just seeing older people studying. Professor Castaneda was the first in his family to go to college. He got his master's degree here, too. And those were the days when Hispanics were still a minority on campus. I didn't think I was going to get into graduate school even with a master's degree. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to apply to schools that I, that I think would be great to get in. There's no chance, but I may as well. And I applied to six schools only. That's all I could afford. And I got accepted to all six of them. Now, there's no better demonstration than that to indicate something called implicit bias and the messages that tell us that we're not good enough. Somebody taught me something and I bought it. And it wasn't true. You know? And so I really have a dedication to, to making that point to students. <laughs> good job, just kidding, good job. What's the function of the limbic system? Emotions, also learning and memory, especially though that kind of learning that has that emotional quality to it, okay? It helps us stay alive. Professor Castaneda's psychobiology class meets Wednesday evenings to accommodate students with jobs. About 40 students, many of them long past their 20s, take notes as he zooms through a PowerPoint about the anatomy of the brain. What's the function of the basal ganglia? One word. Evening classes like this are another way UTEP keeps campus accessible. Gary Edens is vice president for student affairs. And if you're going to open your doors and be an access institution, it's not about just come and we'll take your tuition money. No, it's about come and we're going to support you to graduation. That's an ethical responsibility we have. To meet that responsibility, UTEP uses a sophisticated data center to figure out precise ways to support students. For example, data show that failing a class in the first semester is an early warning sign that a student will have trouble graduating. So we're trying to find out very early in a student's first semester where they're having difficulty so that we can then intervene. Is it a fiscal financial issue? Do we provide them some financial assistance? Is it a tutoring need? Are they just not understanding the topic of conversation? Is it a transportation need? And we find students who miss class because they're taking the bus and it takes them an hour and a half to get here and how can we help them, you know, with those areas? And so, you know, having that information is the first thing. The school keeps track of how students are doing before they even enroll at UTEP, starting in grade school. It's part of a larger effort that includes the school districts in the community college. We're isolated. We're a closed community. And so it wasn't about pointing fingers anymore where the college points fingers at the schools and says, well, you're not preparing the students the way you need to do. And the school's pointing fingers at us saying, well, the teachers that are teaching in our school come from your university, so it's your fault. It's sort of like you can keep pointing fingers or you can fix the problem and realize that we're all in this together. 
UTEP President Natalicio meets quarterly with the head of the community college and superintendents of El Paso's K-12 school districts. The idea is to make sure students are ready for college before they get to UTEP. We looked at data and we knew that if they didn't pass Algebra 1, they were most likely not going to proceed on to a university setting. So, the school districts beefed up Algebra 1 and required every high school student to take it. President Natalicio says what UTEP is doing regionally can be replicated at other public colleges and universities. She says it's up to state schools to close the gap in educational options between haves and have-nots. More people in the top income tiers are going to college, but degree completion in the bottom tier has stayed stubbornly low. Shame on us, because talent and wealth are not correlated. They're not. Talent crosses all boundaries. And it is appalling to think that there would be that big a gap. And that gap has remained, has grown over the past 40 years. Her mission to make UTEP both accessible and excellent seems to be working. During her tenure, it has gone from offering one PhD in geology to offering 20 in subjects like engineering, psychology, educational leadership, and a new one in nursing. The school's data show that 94% of its recent graduates are employed full-time, and 43% had enrolled in graduate school since earning a degree. Every year, it raises more money in research grants, and that helps it attract top-shelf faculty. Washington Monthly ranked UTEP in the top 10 national universities, along with Harvard and Stanford. Perhaps most telling is that students who could go elsewhere choose to go to UTEP, students with top grades and test scores. Leanna Rivera is handing back the papers she's graded. She's Professor Eddie Castaneda's teaching assistant. When we talked last spring, Leanna was 17 years old, grading papers written by students twice her age. I am currently a sophomore by credits, but a freshman by year. I'm majoring in biochemistry with a minor in biomedical engineering. I'm a teaching assistant for two different classes. Leanna started working with Dr. Castaneda on a science project when she was in eighth grade. Her grandmother had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and Leanna wanted to investigate whether caffeine could help. In ninth grade, the project landed her a fourth-place prize in Intel's International Science Fair. Leanna could have gone to college anywhere. She had full scholarship offers from Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, and UT Austin, among others. I thought, well, you know what, like, if I'm, if I'm going to be away from my family for four years, then I don't think it's worth it. Like, I only live this life once, and then I'm going to not see my sister grow up. Leanna says UTEP is a good enough school. More importantly, she's comfortable here. When I would visit other colleges like Michigan and, and a lot of other colleges, um, I would only see, um, I never really saw that many Hispanic people. I'd see mostly like white or, you know, other, other you know, cultures. And, and I couldn't relate to like anyone else. So, but when I come here, I see everyone's, you know, the same as I am. <laughs> and so I'm so happy. Like, I don't feel out of place at all. I feel like I can connect with everyone here. Leanna is prepared to leave for a while. She wants to join the Peace Corps and go to medical school. But then she wants to come back to UTEP to teach and do research. Maybe she and Valeria Guerrero will be colleagues then. Valeria is the geology student who wants to prospect for emeralds and then come back to UTEP to teach. It's the end of the school year, and Valeria has just brought an envelope over to her dad's place. A surprise. She asked her stepmom to shoot a cell phone video of his reaction. I have a decision that affects all of us, she says. Let's have it, says her dad. Open it, she says, open it. I know, you're pregnant, says her dad. He opens the outer envelope. Her stepmom is in on the joke. She says, it's a bill. Valeria's dad's eyes widen as he reads the note. Then they tear up. You graduated, he says. She corrects him. I graduate in May. She tells him this is their invitation to come to the ceremony. 
In the video, her dad swats her with the envelope playfully. And then they hug for a long time. Later, Valeria showed the video to her mentor, Professor Philip Goodell. She's going to keep working with him even though she's graduated. She's going on for a master's degree at UTEP. Here I am, telling them I could do it. I did it, and here you go, your invitation. Just so do they know you're accepted in the master's program? They are now, too, and for them, they still don't... Valeria says her parents didn't think she'd finish college so soon. Maybe not even at all. I feel proud of myself because I show them otherwise, and I show them that I could do it, and that's a message for them and for the rest of the people who said I couldn't do it. It's the biggest pride and accomplishment I felt. It's a, a, a I don't know how to say it in English, I forgot my English, a triumfo, a big tri- sure, triumph. Triumph, yeah. Our story on UTEP was produced by Lori Stern. Administrators at UTEP say they hope their school will serve as a model, demonstrating that it is possible to get more low-income first-generation people through college. Having more people from a variety of backgrounds earning college degrees is urgent. It's estimated that the United States will need at least 20 million more college-educated workers by the year 2025. That number can't be reached if colleges only teach the dwindling number of so-called traditional students. It may be time to retire the expression, traditional college student. Most students who attend college today are non-traditional in at least one way. They're older, or they're on their own financially, or they have children, or they didn't finish high school. The majority of college students today are white, but that's not going to last. It can't last if the United States hopes to fill the jobs of the future. By the year 2060, only 35% of the college-age population in the U.S. will be white. The single largest college-age group in the country will be Hispanic people. Colleges and universities will have to continue to adapt to a new group of students if they hope to have any students at all. You've been listening to The New Face of College. It was produced by Samara Freemark, Suzanne Pico, Laurie Stern, and Catherine Winter. And it was mixed by Craig Thorson. The web producer is Andy Cruz. The American Radio Works team includes Emily Hanford, Dylan Piers-McCoy, Minna Joe, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, and me, Stephen Smith. We have more about the changing demographics at American colleges on our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. We'd love to hear what you think of this program. You can find our contact information on our website. And while you're there, you can check out more than a dozen of our other documentaries about education and sign up for our weekly education podcast. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also find us on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for this program comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. This is APM, American Public Media.